Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys here. I um, I love the weather. Can you move this? Can you? Can I? Uh, I'm I'm from Wisconsin. I love uh, good cold snow weather as much as anybody. But if we miss one more Sunday, we're gonna have to have makeup days, <laughs> like they do in school. We're gonna call you in on like a Thursday or something like that. And um, so I'm glad that we are all uh, here and have the chance to be together um, in the room. Before I uh, get going, we do have a few things that we want you to be uh, aware of. So. There's a couple, and starting in the 6th and the 7th, a couple like workshop class type things that are the fantastic and um, really practical and helpful. So the Caring for Troubled Hearts is the distillation. Katie talked about this last week uh, during the message. Um, but the distillation of our Stephen ministry training, which is um, just about how to listen well and care for people that are going through things in your life, which is a lot of people right now are going through things. And so um, I've, that class, when they've gone through the Stephen ministry training, there are a couple guys over the years that have gone through that class that said, I'm a better husband uh, because I've gone through that training, because it's just super practical stuff. So if you're thinking about doing that, do it. I'd highly encourage you. you can, they're going to have a handful of sessions over the year. You can do all of them, or you can do some of them. And so um, please sign up for that. And then the other session, the Rewriting Your Anxiety, is a class that um, Tracy Miller, who's the licensed counselor in town, is offered last fall, and a handful of people went through, and so she's offering that again. Um, in that, and so that's it's like counseling level stuff uh, that you get a chance to to be a part of. And so, if anxiety is a is a pressing issue for you, I would encourage you uh, to to um, sign up for that. And you can go to the website and find out more. Um, about those. So those are great opportunities. Take advantage of those. I'm going to ask you guys to stand. I'm going to read the passage for today. If you're new to Oak City Church, um, this is something It's like a traditional thing some churches do. We just started doing it last year, but it is an acknowledgement that, uh, that these words that I'm about to read are the most important words you'll hear all day. What I'm going to say is commentary. This is the word of God. We're grateful that God has given us his word. So 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can have a seat. The church has been uh, losing, losing ground. Um, just fewer people are engaged in the church over the past few decades. So I've got a few uh, graphs. I've got a few charts um, that I want to go through here. I've got pictures, okay? You guys happy? i got pictures. Is that good? Yeah. All right, do we have the first one, Mason? So this is, um, this is all from Pew Research, which is really, they're, they're like the gold standard for researching this stuff. That top red line is the percentage of people, and this is over a 15-year span, about that in, in 2007, you asked everybody in America, hey, what religion do you affiliate with? And 78% of people would say, I'm a Christian. And then it went down to 
um, by last year. And then people that said no religion went from 16% up to um, 29%. That no religion is if sometimes you'll hear people talk about the nuns, and they don't mean like nuns dressed up, you know, like N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, no religion. Okay, the next, next chart I have here kind of goes through time. So if you're, you go through the percentage of people that said, I'm a Christian, on the left is from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, it, it stayed into the early 90s, stayed about 90% of people said, yeah, I'm a Christian, but then it started to decline, and so by the late 2010s, and then you can see over in, the, in some of those end columns, it's not that people are going to other religions, it's that they're going to just to say, well, I don't have any, um, I don't have any religion. Um, there's another chart here about like how this changes with generations. So the silent generation, if you're really, really old, uh, 84% of folks are Christians. If you're old, um, the baby boomer is 76%. If you're me, and so you can fill in whatever you want there for Generation X, it's 67%. If you're most of you, uh, the millennials, it's 49%. And so those graphs talk about how it's shifting among generations. I would say that this graph, like at any point in time, has probably looked something like that because younger people are more likely to say, I got this thing figured out, life, I got it. Um, and then a little bit of life happens and they're like, ah, I could use some help here. And so people gravitate more towards um, faith and feel like they need it more the older that they get. But it is, you know, it's kind of an alarming um, graph. It's worth paying attention to. And then one more, uh, well, I have a few more, but one more about, this is about church attendance. So the blue line is people that say, I attend service monthly or more. And the yellow line is the people that say, I attend service a couple times a year or less. And so those have crossed over uh, in the past few years. So um, those are, I mean, that's, that's definitely a trend. You know, something's going on. It's not, I don't think it's, it's necessarily all bad. I'd say a few things. The goal isn't church. The goal is is helping people follow Jesus. Um, and going to church doesn't necessarily mean you're doing that. Just because 90% of people said that they were Christians doesn't mean 90% of people were following Jesus or, or really understood, um, you know, who, who Jesus is. I think for a while in our, in our culture, being a Christian was being a good person. And I don't, like, those things were associated. And so there's, there's something that been, just has been clarifying about what's happened the last few years. One pastor said that the the mushy middle is um, going away. People that were kind of pretending it with the faith, uh, but not really walking in the faith. And I think that's, that's probably good. I think that the worst thing you can do is pretend, and that's probably part of the reason that the church is in the predicament that we're in today. And younger folks aren't going to pretend, and they don't have the reason to pretend anymore. I sent out an article on Friday in the weekly um, that was, and I do this every few months, I find an article about... Um, what, you know, what de determines if kids are going to stick with the faith because our goal is to help people come to know and follow Jesus and, and as much as anybody else is the kids that we bring with us every Sunday that God has given us care over. And every one of those things basically says the more seriously you take your faith and your kids can discern that, the more li likely they are to perceive that there's something real there and to take it seriously themselves. And so that a generation didn't take faith seriously and then the kids all went someplace else makes um, perfect sense. Now, let me point out a few other things about all this data. Nuns, no religion, are not atheists. And so here is a slightly confusing chart. The top line is, the, is what's happened to the Protestant faith. 
and so Protestants are basically everyone's not Catholic. The orange line is is Catholics, the decline of Catholics. The line below that is the rise of the nuns, the no religion folks. And this time frame is a little bit different. And then way at the bottom is atheists. And so atheists have grown from 2% of the population to 4% of the population. So those, my point with that is that the nuns aren't like saying, well, I don't believe in God at all. They believe that God is there. They just don't believe anything really specific about God. And and so they're, I, that's encouraging to me. They're out there. And so I'm going to, don't show this next one yet. What percentage of people would you guess in Europe are atheists? Because we hear this a lot, like we're, we're going to become like Europe. What percentage of people in Europe do you think are atheists? 30? Okay, good. All over the place. Okay, here's the, this, I like this. I kind of went down this rabbit hole, y'all. And um, so you can see something in the Czech Republic, 25% of people are atheists. But other than that, it, like the numbers are fairly low. France is 15%. Some of those Scandinavian countries are a little bit high. France, when we had our, the American Revolution, which was a theistic revolution, like there were theists and deists, they believed that God ordered the world. France had an atheistic revolution. The French Revolution was trying to get God completely out of society. They still have like only 15% that are um, atheists. And the number on that map that was the most surprising to me is in the upper right-hand corner, Russia. Russia outlawed God for 75 years. They said, it's illegal. You cannot. You will not believe in God. We'll send you to jail if you believe in God. And only 4% of people are atheists. And that's good news because God has some staying power, apparently. You know, like no matter what we do, people are going to believe in God because um, God is real. And and that's uh, like a real positive for us. And so those folks are like the nuns, like people are out there open. I know they're open, but like there's some, they're like available to believe in something. People aren't just checking out on God altogether. I was on Nextdoor. How many of you get on Nextdoor? Um, so I want to go know what's going on in my neighborhood. And, and I noticed a post where someone said, hey, I'm new to town and I'm looking for a church. And inside of 24 hours, 100 people had responded to this and I thought, oh boy. And so I, I read every one of them. And, and all but one were like, oh, this is the church I go to. I love it. You should check it out. And one guy was like, Denny's, IHOP, I forget what else he said, but these have served me well on Sunday morning. Feel free to join me. One snarky response. And 100 people that are like, I love my church. You should check it out. And so I do feel like there's a lot of folks, Christians, that are just like don't know what to do right now. And so we're kind of keeping our heads down because we're not sure what all that stuff means, you know. Um, why, why are these dynamics true? Why are these charts the way that they are? Why has the church lost so much ground? What do you think? What's that? Opposing cultures? Yeah. Yeah, what else? Why, what do you think is going on? Pardon me? Hypocrisy in the church? Politics? Mm, yeah, everything's out there. More options? Yeah, oh, to find community. Yeah, the church doesn't play the social role that it, it played for a long time. Is the whole thing about Jesus less true than it used to be? Has that changed? We got like new data in the last 30 years about what happened 2,000 years ago that has changed the whole deal. We haven't, right? Um, are we smarter now than we were then, like 30 years ago? You know, were we like, wait a second, people don't rise from the dead? That couldn't have happened. What are we talking about? 
not here. Like, did that happen? You know, I could argue that people that that lived like 100, 200, 300 years ago when what they did for school was like read the classics all day long for hours instead of scrolling through Facebook and Instagram and TikTok all day long, were smarter than us. I could make a strong argument that we are not the smarter group of people <laughs> than what used to be. Um, so I don't think that's it. Like ch- church, um, it, you know, some things about the church has screwed some stuff up and that has not helped, you know, um, there's apathy and hypocrisy and and playing church that has not uh, helped matters. There are abuse scandals, um, financial abuse scandals, sexual abuse scandals, just abuse of power scandals that have definitely uh, not um, not helped things. There is there is more exposure to um, other faiths and and that is a challenge and that can be good because it forces you to not just accept oh yeah this is but you have to evaluate what you really believe and. Um, so that can be a positive, but even with it, like a more pluralistic society and exposure to other religions, the number that's going up isn't other religions. <laughs> like none of the other religion numbers in America are going up dramatically. It's no religion that's going up. So it's not all that. I I think part of it is that the U.S. has become more affluent, and so the more affluent we are, the more um, we get to do what we want to do because we want to do it. And the easier it is for us to believe that that we're just fine without God. And, uh, you know, to me, that goes that's not dissimilar to Adam and Eve in the garden and the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God saying, you can either trust me or you can just figure all this stuff out on your own. And I saying, well, we'll figure this stuff out on our own. And we have more margin. Like, I think our affluence has given us more margin to think that we're okay without God. When, you know, if we're paying attention, we're really. Um, not and we have more things to distract us and give us the illusion um, of meaning in life even if those things uh, won't last or to keep us from asking the questions that really matter and I would point out that as we've gone in that direction every few months I probably say this that the mental health issues that we're dealing with as a culture I think are more than they've ever been as a culture more people are experiencing depression and anxiety and um, you know are struggling with that and I, I think those things are all tied together and yet even with all that most people still believe in God and most people still believe in an afterlife and so I end up looking at this and thinking there's such an opportunity for the gospel and God's going to take advantage of that um, so how should the church uh, respond to this and that this is like why we're going through first Peter this is also where this passage in particular uh, means so uh, so much to me um, and I think speaks so much to how the church should be walking through what we're going through as a culture right now. So Peter starts this passage, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? So if you're like following Jesus and, and doing the right thing, like who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. And so like you may be zealous for what you perceive to be good, but peop- like it may not work out the way that you think it's going to. Last week, I, I cited an article where a guy talked about these dynamics, but the church moving through what he said was the positive world and the neutral world and the negative world in terms of how the church relates to our, our American culture. And so the positive world fits with these numbers. Pre-1994, everybody pretty much said they were a Christian, and so the, the, the ethical mores of Christianity were were you know, accepted throughout society. And he said for the next 20 years, 1994 to 2014, we were in the neutral world. It is more pluralistic. And so like 
well, that's good, but then these other things are good as well. And, um, you know, and then, and then you get into the, the negative world, which he's been for just the last, you know, seven, seven, eight years, and those numbers could be moved around. But he described the negative world as this. Society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good in the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian worldviews or violating the secular, secular moral order brings negative consequences. Um, tolerance in our culture used to be like, I respect your right to believe, you know, whatever you want to and act according to your conscience with that stuff. But I may not disagree with it, but you have the right to do that. Tolerance has come to be, I'm going to celebrate whatever it is that you believe and however you act. And if I don't celebrate it, then, then I'm the one that's going to end up um, in the wrong place. And, and that's like, that's, I think that's a big part of the, the rub with Christianity is that Jesus you know, made a claim to be the way, the life, and the truth, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And, and so we can respect anybody's belief to, you know, to, to right to believe what they want to, um, but and I think God does that, <laughs> but God doesn't celebrate everybody's autonomy and their choices because they have consequences. Um, there was a uh, years ago an article came out that talked about, and it's basically like the religion of the nuns and probably the religion of a portion of folks um, that de declare themselves as Christians. And and this uh, sociologist named Christian Smith from Notre Dame labeled it moralistic therapeutic deism. And so this is what a lot of people really believe. And so he had these five tenets. One, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and most other world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's where we start really diverging. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. And so most people are believing that, which they feel like is some form of Christianity, but it's really a different, it's a radically different thing um, when you get down to it. And so that, that, there's a, like a divergence, you know, and the tension has been increasing. And so Peter's talking about how do you deal with that, because it's going to be there. And so he goes on, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you, but do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I have probably, I probably did this first like 12, 18 months ago, suggested like a, a spectrum of thinking about how we respond to what's going on in culture and where the church should be. How many of you know what I'm talking about when I say that? Because uh, it's resonated with a number of you, and yet every time we talk about it, you get it wrong, what's on the spectrum. And so I'm just going to keep talking about it a bit because I think it's a helpful thing. And I don't know how, we have a little, some technical difficulties, so I didn't get to see the slide set before him. But what do we have next, Mason? Okay, so this is, this is it. And it's uh, hurtful should be on the, on the other side of arrogant, but we ran out of space. This is how I think we. Um, this is how I think we respond to these things. And on the left-hand side is theologically uncertain. So when it comes to the basics of Christianity, it could be the basics, it could be the gospel. It could be. I've mentioned this in terms of like, 
what ends up where the where the tension comes is some significant issues about race and what the Bible says about race and how our culture talks about it, about poverty, about sexuality, and about abortion are big hot button issues. And so we can approach these things and be like, well, I don't really know what the Bible says about those things. And I know what I'm supposed to believe, but I don't know why. You can be in the apologetic space of like, I do know what the Bible says about these things, but I don't know if I like it. And so I'm, yeah, this is what it says, but you know, I don't know. Like, I'm kind of sorry about that. Uh, You can be in a biblically confident place and that's in the middle and and biblical, like this is, God has given us, truth is not something that, that we are intended to discover, but has been revealed to us in the person of Christ and the word of God that's been given to us. And so we're going to be confident in that because God wants us to have it. And we may not understand all of it, but we're going to be confident in it because we're confident in God. And then you can get beyond that to the place of arrogance. Um, or I've used the word obnoxious before in describing that, where I think it, a lot of the church is kind of obnoxious and is definitely viewed as obnoxious. And even getting to the point of just mean, like the church can be mean and a bit hurtful in the way that it expresses um, uh what it, what it believes. And I realized this week as I was going through this sermon, like this passage is, is, this passage has been one of the most, from the time I became a Christian as a teenager, one of the most meaningful passages, one I keep coming back to, and it has shaped my, my instincts, like of thinking about this. So always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. Don't be theologically uncertain. Always be prepared to give an answer. Um, don't be troubled. Uh, or, or do not fear, or do, don't, don't, don't be troubled, which is, like, you don't, don't, if you're apologetic about it, it is because you're probably concerned about the response that you're going to get from some things from folks, and so he's saying, you don't need to do that, like, fear is not the right response when we understand what God has, um, has told us, uh, biblically confident, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, and the more that we do that, the more biblically confident uh, we are going to be. Um, uh, and, and then moving to the other side, where Peter says, do this with gentleness and respect, is saying, like, don't, don't fall onto the right side of that either, where you're ar- arrogant or obnoxious or mean and hurtful. But the way that you respond to the tension that's going on you know, between your beliefs and the beliefs of the culture around you, and, and the folks in First Peter were experiencing that much more than we do, um, is to be ready to give an answer for people that ask for the reasons for the hope that you have, but do this in a way that is gentle and respectful to the people around you. My, my old boss used to say, you can't legislate morality. <laughs> and I thought that was such a great word because I think in so many ways, the church thinks if we can just get past the right laws, elect the right person, then everything will be okay. And that's just not how... Anything's going to work. People have the right to do what they want. Um, and God gave us that. I, I say this more and more. God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. He didn't hide it. You know, he gave us choice um, and let us deal with our consequences. Where are you on that spectrum? Like, as you look at that, um, you know, where do you think you are? Because if you're in the theologically uncertain place, um, there's an answer to that. Uh, go ahead. And, well, can you put that back up? Uh, If you're in the theologically uncertain place on the left-hand side of that, um, man, there there are opportunities. Like, we don't have to, especially now, we don't have to be uncertain. We probably just have to put some work in. 
um, you're doing that because you're here, right? You're tuning in. You're, uh, you're paying attention. You want to know what God's Word says. The best, the, probably the best thing you can do is read your Bible. Um, we've been doing these reading plans as a church for the last few years, and I sent out an email to the folks that were engaged in the last couple this week. We're starting another 30-day plan. We're going to keep going with some 30, 60, 90-day plans throughout the year so that there's an opportunity to jump on. Um, and the next one is in the Psalms. But we're also starting a two-year through the Bible, uh, um, you know, marathon kind of because it's good to read through the whole thing if you're following Jesus. Because I know people can say, well, the Bible says this. And if you haven't read the whole thing, you're like, oh, I don't know if the Bible says that or not. I'm supposed to, but I don't, you know. <laughs> and so there's theological uncertainty that comes along with that. Um, join a home group and start studying together. Take, take one of the classes that I mentioned, or when Ken offers this theology class, or Weston offers a theology class, man, those are great classes to not be theologically uncertain. I am, over the years, I just brought out a few of them, but I've got so many books <laughs> about um, just the basics, like the basics of does God exist and the, and the validity of the Christian faith. This, the Reason for God is one of my favorite books. There's all these books by a guy named Lee Strobel. Have you heard of Lee Strobel? How many of you ever heard of Lee Strobel? He's like a, he was a journalist that came to faith in Christ, and so he wrote The Case for Faith and The Case for Christ and The Case for Easter and The Case for Creator, and they're great readable books. Um, there's, a, there's a guy named J. Warner Wallace who was a detective and an atheist, and he applied like his detective principles to the resurrection and ended up becoming a Christian. He's got a great book uh, called Cold Case Christianity, and I think I had that, but somebody took it, and that's okay. Um, and then this one is Cold Case Christianity for Kids that he wrote um, to go through with your kids. There's some, some scientists. John Lennox is a British scientist guy who's brilliant and articulate and fantastic and has science buried God. They're great books about that. Hugh Ross is like this super freak genius astrophysicist guy who he grew up in a house where his parents were atheists, and he came to faith in Christ because he started studying astrophysics and it's like something's behind this and he's a brilliant guy. Um, the, the Maybe my favorite right now, I don't have and I don't know what happened to that one either, but that's okay, is a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin who wrote a book called Confronting Christianity, like 12 hard, Christ, hard questions for Christians to answer. So all those things, they're all there. Like spend some time reading them. Listen to them. Like you can listen to books. You don't even have to read a book now. Listen to it on your way to work. Um, uh, when you're exercising, when you're riding a bike, when you're taking your kids to school, whatever it is that you do, like engage with it. There are books and articles and sermons and websites and podcasts and YouTube videos. There's probably even apologetic TikTok videos at this point. Is that true? Is that no? Yes, there are. Excellent. Yes. Um, now, uh, this is something I've wanted to do for a while. I threw it out there last fall. I got a few responses, but I didn't follow up on it. I want to get a community of people together in this, in this realm of theological uncertainty to talk through, and it can be the basics, but it's going to be more like those difficult issues, like that, how to engage with, um, with uh, culture um, when it comes to race, when it comes to poverty, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to abortion. How do we interact with folks that disagree with us in, in what's becoming a prevailing cultural mood, or at least the perception is that it's the prevailing culture. And so I want to sit down with a group of people and learn and just figure out how to have those conversations with gentleness and respect. And and so if you are interested in doing that, I don't know, I'm, I wanted to get 
I want to get five or ten folks that are interested and then just set up a time that works for everybody, either after service on a Sunday or on a Sunday night or on a Monday night or whatever it is, and then I'll advertise it and throw it out to other folks as well. But just a community that is willing to start to have conversations where we learn how to do this with gentleness and respect, with theological certainty, without being apologetic, um, and with gentleness and respect, and like working into that biblically confident space, because I think there's such a huge opportunity for the church to do this well right now. And so if you are interested in that, please let me know, and, um, and we'll put that together. So if theological uncertainty is the issue, like there's a lot of opportunities to become more certain about that. Um, if fear is the issue, um, you know, someone told me, it was a missionary guy, told me years ago that the Bible says 365 times, the Bible says do not fear, like one for every day of the year. I'm going to be honest with you, I'm a little bit too cynical to believe that that's exactly the way that that works. You know, like that sounds like something like me makes up to say, and but somebody probably did read through it and it's close, but the Bible says do not fear a whole lot. How many, how many of you need to hear do not fear on a regular basis? <laughs> Yeah, like every time I read through, I'm like, right, do not fear, because it is just pervasive for us to fear. And don't be troubled. Um, and, and, and just the more, the more the trends go in our culture, the more likely we are to be in this space where we're just concerned if we don't say exactly the right thing, how it's going to be perceived, and are we going to like steer someone away from faith? Um, we did a survey a few years ago about the, like the toughest issues and um, that you guys were dealing with. And my abiding, like, memory of that survey wasn't the issues. It was the fear underneath the issues and, like, needing to know that God is in control. And so when you read, like, the book of Acts, you know, the church has faced far worse than what we're facing. Re there's, I, there's another podcast. I'll probably put it out next week about the church in Iran and things that are going on. Like, what the church faces in other places right now so much more extreme than what we're facing right now. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid. And so that is a leaning in to the Lord, um, you know, if that is your issue is fear. If you lean the other way and you're like the, the arrogant or hurtful is the one um, that gets you, that maybe you think I'm a little harsh or I enjoy being right too much. Uh, I was thinking this week about a verse in John chapter 1 where um, – where John writes about Jesus, the word became flesh, that's Jesus, and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. He was full of grace and Jesus was full of truth. And the way he lives that out for us is an example to the church because there's absolutely a need to stand up for truth, you know, and for what God says is true and right, but how you do it makes all the difference in the world. And Jesus came from heaven to earth to be approachable. So that people would feel comfortable um, approaching God and they would know what God is like. The, the book of Hebrews says he's our great high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And so that makes him approachable. But sometimes we put up a front that makes us completely unapproachable. And so there's been plenty of people over the years at, at Oak City that I've kind of put off a vibe of like, well, if they can't figure out, then it's their problem. And I admire it a little bit because I'm not good at that, you know. <laughs> And, um, and, and we need people to stand up strongly for truth. But making sure that you're not relishing in being right about something, um, that you're not relishing in winning an argument, really, really matters. And so Peter says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, 
may be put to shame. So like when you you can you can you know talk through an issue um it, and he says when you're slandered which is what it, I think it feels like a lot of the times and and he says there's a possibility for people who revile your good behavior in Christ to be put to shame. I don't think he's saying see do the right thing and they'll get what's coming to them. You know, I don't think it's a promise of vindication. I think it's a strategy to reach people. Um because shame all of us have shame from various things and Christ takes away our shame on the cross. God does not want to leave people in shame. He wants to take shame away. I think he's saying when people realize like they've gotten into debate and maybe they're the ones that have been jerks, they'll see Jesus more clearly because you were willing to take on something uh, that you didn't need to. The extent to which we long for vindication as the church as a whole or us individually when it comes to our relationship with culture is a problem. Um, there's a few quotes over the years that personally um, have meant a lot to me. One was Martin Lloyd-Jones saying, you know you're growing in humility when you realize you've got nothing left to defend. <laughs> like, there's nothing defensible. about You don't need to defend yourself because there's not much there that's defensible. I read another quote recently, and it was a line from a saint whose face had the freshness of peace of those whose poverty, spiritual poverty, had taught them they had nothing to defend. Um, because even if I'm right about one thing, I'm wrong about a million other things, you know, and it's not, it's not about me. It's not about us. And that leaves you in a place where you can do things with gentleness and respect. And that is sorely missing in our culture right now, right? Like gentleness and respect seems to have left the building in our culture. I read an article this week, um, and it was just about how angry we are. And so this is in the New York Times. And the, the author said, what was shocking was how widespread these episodes were and how egregious the behavior. From across the country, employees told stories of trying to manage customers out of control petulance. The supermarket clerk who had to deal with a man's outburst in the dairy aisle because he couldn't find the cambazola, a type of blue cheese that he wanted. A flight attendant forced to listen to a political lecture from a passenger who had followed him into the galley raging about injustice, the supervisor at a trade association who said that her once reasonable customers had become just plain mean, berating and threatening her staff for the pettiest of reasons. Uh, it was clear that reality had begun to shift and what once would have been horrifying, this outpouring of rage against the backdrop of constant low-grade mistrust had become the new normal. As the storekeeper with a tantrumy customer told me, you're looking at someone and thinking, I don't think this is about the cheese. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, have you seen that? Have you seen it in others? Let me ask you this. Have you seen it in yourself? Have you? Just tell me I'm not alone, because I have. I have, you know. If anyone should be injecting gentleness and respect back into the conversation, who should it be? It's the church. It's the church. Uh, the rest of the world maybe trying to justify their existence by being right about something, anything. But Jesus has taught us <laughs> through the gospel that we don't have to be right, that we're not right, that it's, it's not about our right, rightness or righteousness. It's about his righteousness that he's given to us. That's the gospel. Uh, the rest of the world might be scared to death about things spir spiraling out of control. Um, but the cross tells us, if anything tells us this, when, when everything seemed lost, <laughs> On the cross, God was in complete control of the situation. 
If anyone should be like, God's got this, God's in control, it should be the church. Like, we should be the ones that are not panicked. Uh, this is honor Christ the Lord as holy. And for the church, it is hard when you're moving from the positive world to the neutral world to the negative world, and it seems like things are a little bit out of control, and you're bent out of shape about it and scared. But, like, we gotta, we got to figure that out. Uh, and, and get in the place where we need to be. One author said about this passage and this dynamic and where the church has been and where the church needs to be. He said, the fact is, ridiculing your opponents is the privilege of the powerful. But now, as an excluded minority, American Christians no longer have the upper hand. Maligning our culture and religious adversaries is therefore no longer an effective strategy. And he, he's not saying it ever was. It wasn't. The days of mocking atheists crass joking about homosexuals, slurring Muslims, and making derogatory remarks about political rivals need to end. They should never have existed, but the church could get away with such impudence when we were the cultural majority. Not anymore. How you compose yourself in the face of opposition matters so much. And the gospel is that we were, we were made in the image of God. We were made to know that we are good and that we are loved. In Genesis, he says, he creates male and female, and says, you are very good. And we have that echoing in our souls. But in the garden, we rebelled against God, and, and we weren't good anymore. There were consequences to our just thinking that we knew better than God. And there's still consequences every day to that. Um, and so we're bad, and we wondered if God loves us. And those are the lies of the devil that he's still saying today. God doesn't really love you, and there's no consequences to your actions. That's still so prevalent in our culture. And the cross tells us he's always loved us. He's always loved us. But the cross also tells us it's not about our righteousness and we can never be good enough. And so on the cross, he takes our shame. He takes our consequences. He takes our unrighteousness and exchanges his righteousness. And so it's not about us. Uh, it's about him. And so we can act out of that place and live out what Peter um, is talking about. When you're in the majority and when you win an argument and when someone else is wrong, like you get a little, you get a little hit of rightness. Like, yeah, you know that hit. Like, it's like a drug, you know? <laughs> and that is leaning into our own righteousness and not the righteousness of Christ. And the more we realize it's not about us, the more we realize we can be right about one thing but be wrong about a million other things. And that'd be okay because it's about Christ's righteousness. The less we have to win an argument. And I think the people around us, uh, I think they know that. I think, and I can remember days of specifically like post-college getting into to debates with friends about religious things and really wanting to be right and to win, and it was out of an insecurity. When people know that you're in it like to be right, A, they don't like being wrong, <laughs> so they're not very likely to listen to you, but they also don't think there's much behind it because they know you just want to be right like everybody else wants to be right. You know? The less you need to be right, you know, and the more you're just like, well, this is what I believe and this is what I think is true and, you know, God loves you and this will be better for you, but, like, this isn't about me being right and you being wrong or any of that. People perceive that and the more they're willing to listen. And the more you will articulate your convictions even when it costs you something, then people really perceive that there's something behind that, like there's something real there because you're willing to pay for it. Um, and, and we're increasingly moving into that space. And God can and has and will uh, use that. So if you're in that 
space on the spectrum. You're on the right-hand side. You're in the arrogant or maybe the, I don't know anybody here that I would consider in the hurtful, but like you like, you're right, you love being right. The number one thing you can do is pray for the people that you're angry at um, because God loves them a whole lot more than you do. And he will begin uh, to change your heart. I believe so much that if we can be not just us, but the church in general, and I think there's a lot of churches in this space, move out of that biblically competent place where we depend on God in ways that we as a church just haven't had to depend on God, that he is going to do. Um, those nuns, like they're out there and, and they don't know the gospel. Like one pastor said they've been inoculated against. They know, they think they know just a little bit, but they, what they know is like a works righteousness that everybody else believes. They don't know the grace of Christ. And there's an opportunity for the church. Um, let, me, let me end with a, so the, the most important part of this verse might not be be prepared. It's probably not do not fear or gentleness and respect. It's probably not on that spectrum. But the beginning of it where he says, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. And I started thinking, are we zealous? Am I zealous for what is good? Are we, are we excited about Jesus and who he is and what he's done and what he's doing and what the future holds? Um, and the line, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. I thought, you know what? We are always prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that's in us. The problem is that um, too much of our hope is in the wrong things too much of the time. I, uh, I started working on this sermon in earnest uh, last Monday morning. And the previous Saturday night, uh, the Green Bay Packers had suffered a fairly devastating loss to the San Francisco 49ers in the NFL playoffs. Being a son of Wisconsin and an owner of the Green Bay Packers, um, I, talked, I took this pretty hard. And the thing for us is it wasn't just a loss, and it wasn't just a playoff loss, and it wasn't even just a playoff loss in a divisional round when you were the betting favorites to win the Super Bowl, and it wasn't just the end of, likely end of a Hall of Fame quarterback's career in Green Bay, but the, the end of back-to-back -back Hall of Fame careers of um, quarterbacks in Green Bay and, the, and the, uh, the prospect of going into the dark ages of football again, which is what I grew up in in the 70s and 80s and um, places where, where teams like the Chicago Bears have resided for years and years and years. And I just, like, I don't want to go back. It was really depressing. And so as I was thinking about this on Monday morning, I was like, man, I can articulate in great detail what went wrong in that game why it shouldn't have gone wrong, why we would beat the Niners nine out of ten times if we played them again, which I was hoping would happen. Um, and, and I woke up uh, Sunday morning, last Sunday, like repenting. <laughs> I woke up asking God to forgive me for caring so much about a football game um, because too much hope is tied up in that. Uh, if you're state fans, and a lot of you are, you got a reminder of that yesterday, didn't you? Bad. Uh, um, and I thought, man, the problem, like, underneath this is not putting enough of our, letting ourselves be distracted by too many things. Maybe fear drives us there. Um, maybe the work 
of overcoming theological uncertainty drives us there. But, but the call before any of the rest of it is um, that our hope on a day-to-day basis is what Christ has done for us and that, and that he's present and he's with us and we are a temple of the Holy Spirit and so he's in this room right now and that our emotional stability and vitality, our hope for the things that matter most uh, comes from him. And so the first question is, is that where your hope is or are we patching things together with stuff that is eternally inconsequential? So we, um, <laughs> we do this every week. We've got communion um, cups that, you know, that we started doing for COVID reasons available. I'm going to, the, the way that we used to do this, and we'll start doing this again as people would come up when they were ready to take communion. We've been doing this together, but today I just want you to do this when you're ready for it, okay? So over these next few songs, you can do this. But this is our, our reminder, as often as we do this, to remember what Christ has done uh, for us. And so above all today, remember that this is where our hope comes from. This is where our righteousness comes from. This is why our future is certain and secure uh, because of what Christ has done for us. Father, thanks for this passage. I, I'm grateful, Lord, that we don't have to fear, um, that we don't have to be right, that we don't have to be obnoxious, that we have to know, Lord, that you are in control. And I pray, God, for our church, um, for the church, that we could work out of that biblically competent place where we have, um, we have set apart Christ as holy, as Lord in our hearts, Lord, that we know um, who you are, and that is the confidence that we operate out of intellectually, uh, but not just that, emotionally, uh, relationally, um, that we know that you are at work and that you are in control, Lord. And pray, God, that you would be able to use us as a church to, to bring people to faith in you and to see the love that you have for them and their need for you. We pray this in Jesus' name.